Welcome everyone to the latest episode of Hailing Frequencies Open. My name is David and I'm joined by my fabulous co-hosts Mel and Carrie. Hello ladies. Hello. This week we are talking about the episode Home Soil. As this episode opens, the Enterprise is apparently on a very fascinating mission of cataloging young planets. Ooh. Uh, please note, I understand it's a job that has to be done, and it would probably be really incredible the first couple of times, but it would probably get boring after a while, yeah. especially if they're not spending any time there. I know, right? There's a planet over there. Can we go look at it? No, no, no. We just need to make sure that we notate that it exists. All right, well. Scan it. We'll move on. And they are in the Pleiades cluster. However, while they're flying around, at some point, the Federation has asked them to check on a group of terraformers on Valara 3, as apparently they're behind schedule. They're all very fascinated by the idea of terraforming. Everybody's really into it. Captain Picard calls down to the station and nothing happened. He keeps calling and things still continue not to happen. Uh, he begins to be get annoyed. Finally, after a couple minutes, the director of the terraformers, uh, director Kurt uh, Mandy, finally responds. He's very terse and very short with everybody. Uh, he's just like, we're fine. Everything's fine. Troy, in having the most to do in an episode in quite some time, she immediately picks up that he's hiding something and he's a little bit nervous, especially points it out to Picard when he insists that a way team goes down. Picard is like, unless you absolutely refuse us, we're coming down. I would have been interested to see what would have happened if he had absolutely refused them. Me too. Because what's the protocol then? Like, okay, obviously something's going on. So it'll take an extra two hours for them to get down there as they get Starfleet's approval to just beam down. Probably. That's probably exactly what would have happened. Picard would have had to contact Starfleet and then they would have would they would have had to wait for whoever is in charge of this group, of this terraforming team, to contact them and, you know, say, do what you gotta do. Right. But I also think that the fact that Mandel at at that point just said, Yeah, whatever, come down. I think that his reaction to that was like, okay, fine means more than what the protocol would have been if he had said no. I think it's very possible that him saying no would have triggered a bigger investigation into what was happening than what he really was trying like to work to deal with. Yeah. I mean, in his mind, he was probably thinking, I have these four or five people come down. I show them the station. They leave. I don't have to worry about Starfleet anymore. But if I say no, I'm going to have a shitstorm on my hands. Exactly. Yeah. Because whatever he's hiding, he doesn't want the Federation involved any further than just the Enterprise. Before I go any further, I do want to also point out this is episode number 27 of the first season where it's very obvious that Yar needs to go because she doesn't do anything again. I'm slightly, I'm exaggerating the numbers of what episode this is, obviously, because it's been a minute 
since they've given Yar jack squat to do, pretty certain, with like one exception, they, there's just nothing going on. So there's no shock that Denise wanted to leave. It's um, sad her character could have really developed and gone to whole new places and taken the show to a different level. She would have had to put up with two years of this, though, before that before that writing crew showed up that would have done something with it. But this is also like a point where the actor themselves has to advocate for themselves, you know, and be like, okay, look, if you wanted me for this show, why am I not doing anything? It's like, are, are there plans in the future? If not, I quit. So from what I've been able to, determine is most of the actors on this did advocate for themselves but unlike for the original series everyone in this series except for um, Will Wheaton and LeVar Burton were unknowns in America nobody knew who they were yeah and so I think you have to toe that line between advocating for yourself and getting yourself fired that's also true, yeah. Wasn't, I think, until they got to season four that these actors could really be like, no, we're doing this. Mm-hmm. Hence why, like, when we talked about Code of Honor and a couple of the other more problematic episodes where I mentioned that the actors weren't real happy about it. Yeah, but they still did the episode. But they still did the episode because... Okay, we can just fire you and we'll just bring in somebody else and have a brand new commander of the Enterprise, you know, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This is also another episode where Worf does nothing except stand around in the background. Nope, yeah, that's true. Because not only did they not know what to do with Yar, they had no concept of what to do with Worf. Significantly in season two and even more so in three and beyond. Michael Dorn didn't have to wait nearly as long as I think Denise Crosby would have for them to really explore her character. He accepts the away team. The away team is the usual suspects, uh, Riker, Yard, Data, LaForge, and Troy gets to go planet side this time. Yay, she gets off the ship. We fade to black. We get our opening montage. When they come back from the credits, it's beam into this room. Although at first we do see a very interesting outside shot of the base that they're on um i do want to point out that is not a matte painting what is it then it's a model oh yeah so they built a model apparently they did make a matte painting but they decided not to use it so they spent a crap ton of money to paint out a matte, pa- a matte painting and then not use it yeah matte paintings are beautiful <laughs> mm-hmm. i think in this case it actually works better as a model because yeah. The planet is desolate, so, I mean, there's not really much for you to do. Mm-hmm. Having not seen what the map painting looks like, I couldn't tell you what the map painting looked like as opposed to the model, but, yeah. So this wasn't a map painting, it's a model. Uh, when they get inside, or beam inside, they're immediately, they're immediately greeted by three people, a hydraulic specialist, Arthur Milliken, biosphere designer, Louisa Kim, and chief engineer, Bjorn Benson. You look out the window and you see it's a dark, basically desert planet. Fairly hostile. Kim is very excited about what they're doing. 
Yes, she really she, is. She's really excited and wants you to be excited about terraforming too. Because yes. she's really jacked up about it. I love the machine that she uses to show them how the terraforming works, where you have the planet and then you just pull the little lever with the little computer screen on it and it just highlights a certain spot. It's got like a 25-year timeline on the bottom and it'll progress it for you to see what the planet will do in that 25 years. I thought that was an interesting piece of kit. I wish they used it again. They don't. Can, can we discuss her job title? So we have a chief engineer, a hydraulic specialist, the director of the whole project, and Lisa Kim's title is Gardener of Edens. She's a biosphere designer. She said, I'm Gardener of Edens. Her, that's what she chose to call it, but her official title is biosphere designer. I like hers better. Fair. It's just very whimsical and fairy tale like. Which matches her character. And then she did go on to say yeah. it does it does very well. And then she does go on to say that when you do this you feel like a god, which would tie back into the Gardener of Eden. She's yeah. not wrong. Of the people that are working on this project, uh, she is by far the best character out of all of them. The actress yeah. whose name escapes me right now really hits the mark as far as that character. She's bubbly and fun without you not taking her seriously, if that makes sense. Yeah, she's that just, makes sense. Uh, um, she's relatable. <laughs> right. She's relatable. She's kept her that. humanity and the social graces, even though they've been on a planet for several years at this point. So it's just her and... Three dudes. Four guys? Three dudes? Three dudes. Yeah. yeah, it's just a group of four. She apologizes for the director's rudeness. She makes note of the fact that they don't get very many visitors. I don't think that was necessary to note because it's fairly obvious that you probably don't get very many visitors. She we don't that, get very many people here. She says that Dr. Mandy has been under a great deal of stress lately. That's understandable. I mean, trying to transform a dead planet into a living one, I can imagine that it would be probably pretty stressful. Kim offers to show them around. Troy makes mention that unlike the director, she's as genuine as she seems. You can already tell. I believe. You can already tell also that Riker is contemplating how he can uh, spend time with her later. I was just going to say, he's giving her the Riker look. He's like, come up to the ship anytime. <laughs> Mel, I kept Are you truly a female presenting character on Star Trek The Next Generation if Commander William T. Riker hasn't given you the look? Yes, because he has never looked at Dr. Crusher or Dr. Pulaski that way. Nobody looks at Dr. Pulaski that way. How dare you even say <laughs> something? Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I take that back. Rikers, yeah, we'll cut to that, which is ew. But we don't know he hasn't looked at Dr. Crusher like that. That's fair. Uh, to be fair, he, he will much later in the series, but he is under the influence of Alien. <laughs> To say the least. 
the host episode. Oh, dear God. <laughs> I will point out, though, that something that I'm not sure how I feel about is so later on in the episode, um, everybody's been beamed back up to the ship. So all the people who work from the outpost are on board. Uh, Troy notes that she's having a hard time getting Dr. Kim to open up and talk to her about what they discovered or what they were doing. And she very calmly looks at Riker and she goes, but you would probably have more success than I. What are we like? <laughs> Troy so, is pimping him out. So Riker, what we're going to need you to do is yep. we're going to have you use your male wiles on Dr. Kim and get her to tell you everything. But leave the fuck light in your quarters, please. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't have to. <laughs> I'm just I'm sure he has another one. <laughs> Listen, I'm sure he has a drawer full of them where he's just like, <laughs> hey, let me show you this. Hey, let me show you this ancient meditating artifact from planet Zeti Alpha 5. He turns I'm gonna, on. <laughs> I'm going to say something here that we have no background for, but I'm going to take as my own head canon. We know that Riker is a gigolo. Right now, yes. Right now, yes. I'm thinking Troy, not a gigolo, but I'm thinking Troy ha has dated or is dating men's on the Enterprise, and we just don't know. Mm -hmm. I think they're both dating around. He less dating and more just extracurriculars. I'm going to need you to take your clothes to, like, off. Get, you know, some kind of connection with people. So I think she has one of those lights too, is all I'm saying. Oh, I'm not disagreeing, but I'm also saying they chose not to really go into any other character's romantic life until much later. But yeah, it, I, I don't think you're wrong though. Because it's fairly foolish to think that the officers, except for Picard, aren't dating other people. Right. I mean, it's they're just flying around on the ship. I don't, okay. I don't think Tasha, Worf, or Jordy are dating anybody not right else. Now. Not in this, like, first season. Yeah. We do know that Tasha had her extracurriculars with Data, so. Yes. I mean, Worf levels up and ends up in a long-term relationship with Troy. He does. He does. But well, right now, you know, he's still of the human women are too fragile. Yep, yeah. He's for sure. <laughs> and he's still and, held to a lot of Klingon tradition, which which eventually is shattered. I think that him those traditions being shattered for him is the, the reason why he's able to be in a long-term relationship with Troy. Because if he was sure. still holding on to those Klingon ways... He would have never gone there. For sure. And the Forge, I think it's fairly obvious why they didn't pursue romantic relationships for him at all. Um, LaForge talked about it a lot. Like he wanted them to do episodes because everybody else got to have a romantic relationship. Picard got Vosh. 
Riker and Troy were on again, off again. Riker got um, everybody. Riker got everybody. Wesley Crusher got Ashley Judd. Mm-hmm. Um, Wesley got a, a love, a romantic storyline. I mean, Jordy did get like I want. It feels like he only got like two episodes, maybe three. His episodes were he fell in love with the doctor on the holodeck. Yes, and but then when she showed up, show but up. she was married. Yeah, no, but he didn't know. She's she just an <laughs> asshole. And, right and he was until an asshole. the end, and. It, but he's commented a lot, and what he's one of the things he commented about is that he's fairly certain that one of the reasons why they didn't ever want to explore it is because he was a black man. Because like you can explore it with Worf because he's an alien. Yes. Uh-huh. So do whatever you want. But something it's less of an issue now, but it was definitely an issue then. Mm-hmm. Is black men having? normal romantic relationships and then to top it off the two women he did have some kind of interest in because there was the lieutenant the computer lady were both white women another issue on top of the first and again more so at the time when they filmed it than now right because you'll see black men having relationships now but at the time like going back, I was thinking really hard about this, and the only black men that I saw in relationships were with black women on TV mm-hmm. or in films. Mm-hmm. I didn't really, and you rarely saw black women in relationships with white men. Yeah, you saw it more frequently than black men and white women, but it was definitely an issue, and it's something did that you? did you did I what. Did you see black women with my, white men more frequently? Yes. They did it on the Cosby show. I don't know. With, oh, yeah. Okay. That is true. But uh, Jordy, yeah, he does get with like two white women, but in the episode Aquiel, he does get with a, a black woman. Right. But again, Aquiel does Aquiel, they, they didn't do anything with it, though. No. They and didn't put because it. by the because by the end of the episode it's just like all right bye you know and it's yeah like, that's not an episode there's no there's no story arc here it's a failure I feel in next generation specifically of they were unwilling to do it however when you got to Deep Space Nine since it was mostly all the same writers from Next Generation by the time they got to Deep Space Nine. Paramount basically allowed them to do whatever they wanted. So Avery Brooks and Sir Lofton, they explored rela- like relationships with them all the time. Sometimes it was played for humor, but it was done the same thing for everybody in that cast. So it, that was okay. Sometimes it was played as for seriousness. Sometimes it was, you know, it didn't seem to matter. Like they definitely got more of a blank slate to do what they wanted with DS9 than they did with TNG. Well, and then you have the most prominent interracial relationship on both those shows, but that worked due to racism. Think about it. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It did. That's you're the not, reason why that relationship worked. You're not because wrong. Because just sad. Oh, I don't disagree. 
something that I will say is, you know, growing up as a kid watching Next Generation, you watch it and you're just like, oh, this is really cool and forward thinking and look at all the cool stuff. And then going back and rewatching, it's like, it's still cool and I still really like it. But it's not nearly as forward thinking as I used to, as I thought it was when I was younger. Deep Space Nine still is because they really, the writers for Deep Space Nine, they didn't give a fuck. They like, tackled some issues. Like, like <laughs> if, if and whenever we get to reviewing Deep Space Nine, that's a whole separate, like, they're just like, this episode, we're tackling racism. Oh, okay. Are you going to do it nicely? Oh, no. Nope. <laughs> oh, no. We're going to show it all to you. Oh. We want you to feel everything. This episode is going to be a two-parter about not being a dick to people that don't have a job. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the truth is, you can't tackle it nicely. No. Mm-hmm. You don't learn if it's if it's sugar-coated. You have to for learn sure. by watching oh, for exactly. the brutality of it all. Exactly. Sure. And so I give Deep Space Nine a lot of credit. However, to get to there, for lack of a better phrase for it, Next Generation had to walk before Deep Space Nine could run, which is may not be a fair assessment of it, but it's what I'm going to choose to use. No, I think it's fair because there was still this wiggle room that needed to happen with the writers of Next Gen for season one, and then once they got new writers they're like oh we want to do all these things but we kind of can't yet but we're going to pave the way for the next series to do it and they did it and they did it well i mean because there was still like backstage racism on deep space uh, specifically the first couple seasons of deep space nine because they wouldn't let avery brooks shave his head that wasn't a writer thing that was a rick berman thing which is one of the many reasons why a lot of people don't like him is because he would do he, he, like he would do stupid shit like that. Yeah. Um and people pointed would rightfully point out like Patrick Stewart was bald. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, but he was balding. Right. <laughs> I'm sure that their argument was He's what was that? White guy. No, I know. That's that's what I'm saying is but we're going off on a tangent. We are. Reel it back. So <laughs> um, we have escaped our pin and we need to be wrestled up and brought back in. That's right. So uh so right Kim, here. So, <laughs> so this all started because of that. Anyway, before we got to there, they're still down on the planet. Kim is very excited and is showing them all the cool gadgets and stuff. And they're going to turn it into a, a class M environment. LaForge and Data are very interested in what she's talking about. I think this might be the first episode that you really get the idea that LaForge is going to be chief engineer soon. I also am not sure, but this might be the first, like this might be the most lines he's had in an episode all year. This episode is very technical. There were a lot of stops and starts for me watching this episode just to digest what they were saying. It was a lot of... I understand what you're saying and you're right. You're absolutely right. This is the most Jordy has spoken on the show, but it was just a lot of talking period. And a lot of it was very hard technical information. 
Yeah, and I mean, it, it's almost like they gave it to Brent and to Jordy out of necessity because they felt like, oh, Brent and LeVar can do the technical jargon because this isn't a heavy Will, uh, Wesley episode, but he does appear for no reason whatsoever. Got to pop up every now and then. I'm, I'm going to steal Mel's <laughs> lines, though. I'm fairly certain he should have been in school at that point, but duct anyway. ass to a seat. Right. So Kim's very excited. The Forge and Data are very, you know, they're talking to the hydraulic specialist who really wants to get, talk to them about the hydraulics. Chief Engineer Bjorn is kind of less interested in talking to any of them. Director finally appears. He's much more jovial now. It's like he's gotten hold of the space drugs. He's much more happy. He's much more jovial. He apologizes for appearing gruff and moody. He then tells the hydraulic specialist to go into the drilling room and keep drilling to because they're about to extract the water and take all the salt out of it and then reintroduce it. This seems to take the hydraulic specialist by surprise, but he does it. After a few minutes, you see him walk off stage. There's some more technical jargon. All of a sudden, Troy gets a very strange look on her face, and she announces that Melson is in serious trouble. Red alert sounds. Uh, they all go running back to the hydraulic station that they can't open, and they hear a laser drill blasting away and cries of pain, and the door is sealed. They tried to force the hatch, although I have to say they didn't do a particularly good job in that. Like, it just seemed to be like, they're like, it's broken. And then they all just stood there and waited to hear the man die. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, but the android could have pried the doors open. That's what I'm saying. Instead, he's not even in the front of the queue. He's no. like behind everybody. Like, yo, I'm just going to kick it back here. With my slushy, I don't, I don't know what he was doing. It's literally Riker just puts his hand on the door and be like, "I can't force it open." All right, well, I guess we have to listen to a man die. <laughs> like, hey, Data, wanna try it? <laughs> they don't shoot laser phasers at it. They don't do anything. They're just like, "All right, well." <laughs> oh well. <laughs> Suddenly, the screaming stops. As soon as that happens, the door magically opens. The room is a mess. And you see a man on the ground smoking. Not smoking a cigarette. Like, no. he is smoking. That would have been so funny. The door opens, <laughs> he's just smoking a cigarette. He's like, best I've ever had. <laughs> no, he's he's in a, he's lying flat on his back. He's got some holes in his, in his outfit, uh, burn marks on his body. They comment that he's badly injured and he probably can't be saved. That's interesting, being that none of them have medical degrees. Mm. <laughs> and they didn't really do that quick of, an, of a look at him. They're just like, oh, he's been hit by laser fire. He's probably going to die. Might want to get him up to the ship. <laughs> Nobody even had a tricorder to like <laughs> no. examine him. No, like, take your two fingers and put it on his neck. Do you feel a little thump thump? No. He did. <laughs> so in the middle of the room is this large drilling laser on a mechanical arm that is still pointing at him, but it's not doing anything. Yar walks up to Malkin and Riker has them transported to the ship. They cut all the power to the hydraulics room 
everyone's still down on the planet is about to have a more technical conversation. However, Kim announces that she wants to go back to the ship and that Mandy should go too, as he's the director. So everything changes and everybody beams back up again, except for uh, Data and LaForge and Bjorn, because he wasn't there. Data is very interested in the fact that the laser drills seem to stop at the moment that um, Malcian stopped screaming. Very foolishly, it just reactivates power to the room without really thinking about it. And he reruns the drilling program. And the first two shots go straight down the, the little tubes that they've built. And then it shoots right at him. But because he's an android, he's able to dodge and, you know, out of the way. At this point, LaForge and Bjorn hear it. And they come running to the rescue. But the door is again sealed. And, you know, they can't do anything because they're... And again, they're not really trying. Like, there's not... It's like, oh, it's sealed. Okay. All right, now what? I'm like, you're this not trying. This is my favorite part of the entire episode. <laughs> yeah, go, Dave. Go ahead, David. So the door finally opens. LaForge runs in. And Data's just like, I'm fine, but just barely. And LaForge runs in to a mangled, destroyed laser arm. Benson looks like you just kicked a puppy. No, that poor man. <laughs> he has the most like, what did you do to the drilling arm? Like he's devastated. I spent so much time it was making a year that. of his life destroyed. And Data apologizes to him and says, but there was no other answer because it's the only way I wouldn't die. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. Um so my favorite part of the episode is right before the doors open, Jordy and Benson hear the laser going off and they hear Data and Data is telling them, you know, what's going on. And then Jordy says, again, what's going on, Data? And Data's like, I can't tell you I'm too busy because he is dodging laser beams. And then Jordy contacts the Enterprise and Picard says, well, what's going on? And Jordy's like, Data's trapped and the laser's trying to kill him. Da, 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 da. And Picard says, well, get him out of there. And Benson has stopped trying to get the door open with the keypad. And Jordy decides the best way to try to get the door open and Data out is to yell Data several times very loudly at the door. That was my favorite part of the entire episode because it was so absurd. Jordy, you are an engineer. I mean, I know that Benson is also the chief engineer of this project, but like you're Jordy. Try, try the keypad. Do something. Like, I mean, help. Ain't no but, one got time to press all those buttons. No, instead I'm gonna stand here and just yell data over and over again into, into the door and hope that maybe that will help them. Maybe that's the magic word instead of abracadabra and the doors will open. It's two times now that they've all, the magic uh, properties of a door have completely flummoxed them like they've never seen one before in the history of the universe. Doors are hard, dude. 
it's it made funny. Outtakes. It made it's funnier in future episodes when they just like phaser a door or they blow it up in some cases. Or those so, things, those suction cup things that are supposed to pry the doors open. I love those. Oh like, yes, yeah, those are cool. Yeah, those are cool. But they apparently didn't have any of those right now, so you know, still on the drawing board. Next thing we this see is the uh, worst equipped station. Ever. Ever. There's no, seemingly there's no phasers. I understand why the crew, the away team wouldn't take phasers or tricorders because they're going to another Federation station. So they don't need that stuff. But seemingly the station itself has no phasers or tricorders. Which makes no no sense to me. No like fire extinguisher to put the poor guy out. Nothing. Well, and and they show quite clearly Lieutenant Yar has a phaser. But, yeah, but that's Yar. She's always prepared. Right, but they didn't let. But she didn't shoot the door. No. Probably because she was waiting for Riker to tell her to shoot the door, and Riker's just like, "I don't know how doors work. This isn't something I can." <laughs> so at this point, everybody beams up. They cut all the power or to the, the outpost. At this point, we find out from Crusher that the man couldn't be saved and his injuries were too extensive. Fair enough. She's an actual doctor. She has the tools. Could he have been saved if they'd been able to do something before just beaming him directly to sickbay from the, from the room? Maybe, but we just don't know. Picard tells Director Mandy that he is shutting down the operations until everything's investigated. Mandy is now really angry. Picard notes that a member of his crew was attacked, which now gives him the authority to do what he's doing, which he's not wrong. I'm pretty sure the murder of the dude probably would have given him cause to do what he's doing. But... Right? So everything's on hold until he has answers. Mandy turns to leave and Picard is like, but wait, and makes him suffer the humiliation of having Yar escort him to his quarters. Such a dick. (laughs) The Forge and Data tell him that the drilling laser was somehow reprogrammed to kill anyone in the room. The three remaining terraformers are the only possible suspects. Picard has the Forge and Data return to the planet to look for any tampering and all this other stuff. Worf announces that they have transferred enough power down to the ship, down to the unit to turn on life support. Enjoy the Worf moment while you have it. That's his only moment in this entire episode. Uh, After that, he kind of appears in the background a few times and that's it. He has SCR to look at the service record and has Troy review and look for possible motives in between all the crew. Great, efficient. Picard is doing captain things. Makes all the sense in the world. Uh, Data and the Forge return to the station. Not the main part of the station, but the drilling room first. As they are standing there, a strobe goes off in the hole. It has turned into a discotheque. Kind of. Data notices it first. I'm not sure how Jordy didn't notice it because the strobe was quite strong. He Data stares at it for an exceedingly long period of time. Much longer than I think he needed to. Scans it with his tricorder. It doesn't really get a reading. So he goes, he asked Jordy to come over because he needs his help with the visual inspection. 
Jordy still hasn't seen the flashing strobe at this point until he actually looks into the tube. It's inorganic, yet the colors are unexplainable, and he's very impressed. It's almost like he's taken acid. Data wonders if he could be alive and that this might be what the terraformers are trying to cover up and that this is why someone killed Malkin. So he hasn't quite put two and two together what this is yet, but he's getting there. The objects thing we are in the sick bay. Everyone is in sick bay for reasons, uh, including Wesley Crusher, who has no reason to be there whatsoever, but he's there. Is it he's there because it's his mom's office. Fair enough. Yeah. And he's always got to bug her. As somebody who works in the same office as their mother, this is not <laughs> odd because I have gone to my mother's office for nonsense and she has come to my desk more often than not for n- nonsense. <laughs> so if you work with your, if your, or if your child has access to you during the, the work day and you don't tell them not to come into your work area, they're going to show up with nonsense. Well, that's fair. I mean, he's not really doing any nonsense. He's just kind of there for right now. Considering he should be in class, his presence there is nonsense. I'm going to have to agree. School, Wesley. School. Dr. Crusher has placed the strobe inside a uh, bell jar. At this point, I don't think she's put any force fields or security around it. It's just inside of a bell jar. Yeah, she hasn't done any of that yet. The computer scans it multiple times and verifies there's no organic molecules. Crusher enhances the scan on the wall display. So, and it has a cool, like, psychedelic pattern to it. Uh, Basically, it looks like a discified sand dollar. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of does look like that. With scales. Uh Uh-huh. So they start noticing a noise coming from it. And they thought maybe it was from the scan, so they turn the scan down, but the noise doesn't turn down. But the noise does turn down when they wander away from it. So they're like, huh. Crusher asks the computer what is causing the flashes and noise, but the computer's like, I don't know. Be more specific, please. Well, it says that it's theoretically impossible. She asks the computer for for a hypothesis, which takes a second, and the computer responds with a very quick, life. Fair enough. Picard at this point tells Mandy and his staff. Mandy is leaning on that the Federation verified Valar 3 to be lifeless. But Picard says that this was understandable given the novel nature of the life form. Every time we see Mandel since he left. So when we first see Mandel, he's angry or hostile. And then we see him on station and he's trying to project a kind of a jovial, high, sorry, I was grumpy nature. But then once he get they get him on the Enterprise, every time we see him after that, he gets more and more hostile and angry. The first time they were talking to him in the ready room, he tried to stomp out of the room and Picard had to like check him and be like, uh, Yar, escort him to his quarters. I'm like, you don't get the last word in my office. And even now, Picard is trying to explain to him what's going on, and he 
just doesn't want to hear it. He's just getting angrier and angrier. So it's very suspicious is all I'm saying. Because if you were, if you're trying to terraform a planet and you found out that there is a possible life form on there, you wouldn't necessarily react in anger unless you were getting news that maybe you already kind of sort of knew. He does have a great line when Picard drops that he would be violating the prime directive. Mandy makes it very clear that he's in the business of creating life, not taking it. And he leaves. Uh, Troy does mention that Mandy seemed generally surprised by the somewhat accusation of murder, but she's not sure if he was surprised that he was accused of murder or the general idea of murder. Also, Yar's in the room, but I'm not sure why, because she doesn't escort Mandy out. She's just there. This is the point where Troy tells Riker that he'll have more luck talking to Kim, which he immediately goes and does. Not sure how much talking they did, but they did do some. In the medical lab, Crusher calls Picard, and LaForge tells him that they is detected a shift in the infrared spectrum and that the internal structure is somehow changing. The strobe flashes very brightly, um, nearly blinding everyone in the room. The hum grows louder, the hum and the light subside, and now there are two strobe lights in the jar. The, the disco sand dollars have uh, replicated, and now there are two of them. Data points out that only life can replicate itself. He is not wrong. Uh, as a precaution, Crusher finally activates a containment field around the bell jar, but the computer is having trouble maintaining it. Uh, the computer indicates that they are receiving a request to translate. Apparently, the glowing objects are trying to communicate. Power is the inf increase of the containment field, but the fight they're fighting for control. It looks like a life form. It's also intelligent with the power to access the computer. At this point, nobody thinks to try and beam it back to the planet yet. They're just like, all right, we'll just leave. So they abandon sickbay. Great. I really hope nothing bad happens to anybody that makes them need to go there. They are now in the observation lounge. Uh, Picard is not hiding behind anything. He's directly confronting Mandy, asking if he knew there was life. He admits he knew of random energy patterns that disrupted their drilling. But there was no indication of life by anything he is aware of. He added that they're meaningless silicon crystals that rebroadcast sunlight. Picard tells him they're hardly meaningless. They are clearly alive and intelligent and are trying to talk to him. Uh, at this point, the bell jar is, contains several points of strobe lights. Data LaForge and Worf are continuing the analysis um, can, and confirm its structure and properties from engineering. However, the power fluctuations are becoming numerous and all over the ship. Uh, something is obviously taking over. Uh, when they're back on the ship or on the bridge, the universal translator basically comes on by itself. And you hear a very disjointed voice basically say, ugly giant bags of mostly water. Favorite line. Best description of humans ever. Right. <laughs> My favorite line of the whole episode. Picard is confused and Data's being scientific. is just like, they're not wrong. You're 90% water covered by a bendy skin. I mean, <laughs> I mean he's, Thanks, he's not wrong. <laughs> 
Thanks for that. Astute. Oh, I'm sorry. He points out that humans are 90% water surrounded by a flexible container. Oh. That doesn't make Picard feel any better. No. Um, <laughs> basically, the crystal keeps talking. They saying they asked the humans to leave, but they didn't listen. And it has driven them to kill, which they apparently didn't like. Picard tries to talk to the crystal and, and tell them they come in peace. They didn't understand the message and they were unaware there was life on the planet. The crystal objects and stating that the bags at the station knew. They tried peaceful contact but were ignored and some were killed. They have no choice now but to declare war. At this point, before Picard can say anything, the crystals end communication. At this point, the ship is jolted by something. The, yeah, the crystal did something to make the ship they're kind of unspecific as to what it was that they did, but the crystal did something. We do see the crystal has joined together now in a crystalline shape in the jar, and Data calls it a microbrain. The more there are, the stronger they become. Well, that's, that's great. I'm glad they're going to die by the weird pink crystal that's stuck in the... Stuck in a bell jar. <laughs> Yep. Data also has identified the flashes of light as a program instruction, which allows them to interface with the ship's computer. Additionally, it is intelligent enough to interface faster than any crew can. After a quick flare of energy and more disturbances in the ship, the crystals seem to power down. Cruster indicates that with single-celled organic life, replication is followed by a resting period. Makes sense. Perhaps it's the same for the microbrain. Picard tries to have Yar beam the entity back to the planet, finally, but it doesn't work. He tells Data to remove the atmosphere from the medical lab. Data tries, but again, that doesn't work. Picard meets with the teleformers, explaining them that the entity said it had tried to contact them before, but they ignored it. Uh, Mandy claimed that if it tried communicating, they didn't understand it. How are they to know? Picard wants to know what the terraformers did to cause the crystal to fight back. Kim makes the comment that Malzian was siphoning off a layer of saline water on the surface of the sand. Crusher makes a very astute observation that suggests that the life needs water. Perhaps it was sustaining them. Data says salt water does conduct electricity. It might have been what linked them together. Individually, a single brain cell is not intelligent, but when linked to others, it becomes quite formidable. And to try to prevent it from losing all of its salt, it drove them to kill. So the mass in the bell jar keeps growing brighter, and then suddenly the glass shatters, and now the crystal is large enough to see. Data and LaForge come up with an idea. They detected cadmium salts, which create electrical currents under infrared light. Perhaps the crystals are photoelectric in nature. Or Picard orders all the lights in the medical lab turned off, but the controls don't work. Finally, someone thinks of a solution outside of the box because Riker runs to an access panel in the room and turns off the lights that way. This is also strange though, that these super intelligent crystals won't have thought, hmm, there's a control panel in the room. Maybe we should shut those controls off too. We could but, have dimmed the lights ourselves. They were resting. I'm thinking it's more like they were in a, like a hibernation period where they were there, but they weren't necessarily fully there they weren't fully fun like paying attention to what was going on they were in there i need a smoke after that period we did reproduce um, a lot <laughs> you know get a little they're tired in the, they're after. in the 
Kick up your feet. I'm now big crystal. <laughs> and, <he's broke. laughs> and a nap. <laughs> and a nap. Don't bother me for at least 20 minutes. The glow of the crystal starts to die off a little bit. And then the crystals start communicating. They're pretty much begging for light. They very reluctantly, after a while, declare the war to be over if they were a return to the wet sand. Picard has Riker turn the lights back on just a bit to relieve them of their torment. He does apologize for having caused them harm. And then the transporter chief beams the entities back to Valaria 3. Picard places an indefinite quarantine on the planet. Data is disappointed that they couldn't learn more about the strange life forms. And they go to the nearest starbase to drop off the teleformers. Picard does make a note that he hopes that the lessons learned will prevent it from happening elsewhere, which is a good point. And Data probably understands that the terraformers really ruined any chance they had to study the life form. And that's it. That's all she wrote for home soil. I'm going to go first on this. Uh, for season one episode, it's not terrible. As Mel pointed out, it's a very science-heavy episode, which is not a bad thing. It's There's a lot of talking and a lot of... And in this episode, there's actually a lot of real science that they just spin out past what is known, which is very interesting and something that Star Trek does on the rig. There's no standout performance here. Everyone's just kind of doing their jobs as far as any like behind the scenes stuff go. Uh, this was Gene Roddenberry's final episode as head writer. Maurice Hurley took over control of the writing staff, starting with the next episode, Coming of Age. Uh, the other issue was that this was being rewritten um, while they were shooting. So the director was getting new pages to shoot the morning that he showed up to shoot. There was some issues here. <laughs> it's again an episode where I feel like they're trying to really cover a deeper topic than they're able to actually pull off here. And I think it's the hubris of man just assuming that they know all the answers, but they're not quite willing to really go to the full depth of that. It's very much like the original episode that we reviewed, The Devil in the Dark. People with good ideas, unknowingly killing and things, and the creature just kills them back, but not because he hates them, but mostly because they're killing them, so they need to defend themselves. But yeah, on the basis of no standout performance and it being a very inoffensive episode, I'm going to give it a six. Like, there's nothing to hate here, but there's nothing to sink your teeth into either. Carrie. Yo! <laughs> I don't really care for this episode. It was boring to me. But you guys are right. It was very more science-driven than some previous episodes that we were watching. And there's nothing wrong with that because, I mean, it's a science fiction show and you need to know some science behind whatever the hell that's going on in each episode or else it wouldn't be sci-fi normally when i just rewatch all the seasons of next gen i do skip this episode so in my humble opinion you don't really need to watch it like david said there's no standout performances no one focus 
on one character or anything like that and nothing like that really like drives the story forward and for future episodes or anything like that I don't know the best I guess the best part for me was when Data destroyed the laser that was funny (laughs) yeah so I guess I would give this this episode about I guess a four it wasn't like super bad but for me it's not it's not one that I go back to time and time again I agree Mel so like both of you said you know this is like Carrie said this is a this is boring it's a boring episode like I said earlier there's a lot of science you guys both said that it's a really benign episode but Carrie's right you don't need to watch this episode because there's nothing it doesn't further the story it doesn't come back up later like other things that we've already seen do we've seen two instances two instances in previous episodes of the season where they will come up in later seasons so it's good to watch those episodes to establish that the thing that i found the most interesting about this episode is the end two things happen the entity tells them don't come back here for at least 300 years three centuries it says so 300 years and maybe by then because um picard asks if they can trust that you know can you trust us And they're like no maybe if you come back in 300 years maybe then we'll trust you but we don't trust you right now you guys are too primitive and this is a recurring theme this is a recurring theme in the original series and this is a recurring theme in Star Trek The Next Generation. And it's the genesis of the entire series because the first episode, they're too primitive, which is why Q wants to destroy humanity. So I find I found that them bringing that up and using the, the, the same words is very interesting. And it's a callback and not only is this whole episode a callback to Devil in the Dark, but it's a callback to the episode with the man that just went right out of my head. You know, the creature that Kurt had a fight on the planet. The Gorn. The Gorn. Thank you. The yeah. Gorn. I was going to say the Gortha, but I know the Horda is from Devil in the Dark. I knew it started with a G. At the end of that episode, when the entities who put them on the planet come back, they're like, you guys are primitive, you're babies, you need to learn more. And maybe we can establish some kind of relationship with you once you have gone away and actually like grown and learned that you are not the only people in the universe. So I I find that interesting. And the other thing is Picard saying, I hope one day we'll learn from this. No, you clearly won't because this type of situation already happened at least what 70 years prior and nobody learned anything it's the same thing you went to a planet that wasn't yours you thought one thing that and then you realized that it wasn't true and instead of stopping the people in charge pushed on with their own agenda and the devil in the dark it was to make money and in this episode, the single-mindedness of director Mandel was to terraform this planet. He didn't care if he killed the life form that was on the planet. 
because he didn't find it consequential enough. And his out was the Federation said it was a dead planet, so I was okay. And just like the man and the devil in the dark, we need to make more money. So it's okay. You didn't learn and you're not gonna learn. And that is why you're perpetually being told by other more advanced species that you too primitive to even deal with. We don't wanna deal with you because you are too primitive. You're very selfish and self, self-centered, self-looking. You don't care what happens to the people around you. Even if you have this prime directive thing, you still are violating it in several different ways. And I find that to be the most interesting part of the entire episode, the last five minutes, which is interesting, but it, because if you are bored and you turn this off or you're so bored that you have tuned out or zoned out by then, you're going to miss that. And it makes me wonder, do we ever do the humans on the Federation? Because we do know that there are other species in the Federation, but every time this comes up, it, they're really talking about the humans. Are the humans ever going to learn? Are the humans ever going to grow? And just basing this off of the world as it is today in 2021, I'm going to go with no, because the things that they're dealing with in the future are things that we still deal with now. And nobody's grown and nobody's, they listen, but they only listen in the moment and then they forget about it. And that's what I find the most interesting. And actually it's pretty sad if you think about it, if you like really take a deep dive and think about it, it's really sad. All that to say, it was boring. You don't have to watch it if you don't want to. And I'm glad that this was Gene Roddenberry's last episode as head writer. Next week, we will be talking about coming of age. This should be fun because I don't remember this episode at all. It could be good. It could be bad. It could just be a thing. Who knows? Anyway, so that is next week. Until then, follow us on social media if you like at open underscore hailing. And we will see you next week. And remember to keep your hailing frequencies open. Have a good night. Good night. Bye.